Let's Chat Health with Anne Budenberg, empowering patients to be involved in their healthcare. So I'm joined today by Dr. Gail Doherty. Um, she's Senior Lecturer in Neuroscience at the School of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of St Andrews. So I'm very pleased to be chatting to her today. And in this second episode, we're going to chat about dementia and around the theme of um, a healthy body, uh, sorry, a healthy mind in a healthy body. Or if you prefer the Latin version, it's mens sana in corpore sano. So if we can, we'll return to that sort of overarching theme in a few minutes. I just really wanted to, first of all, say how I came across the team at St Andrews who are working on all sorts of fantastic work around dementia. So it was back in 2018. um, I went to an event which was co-organised. Gail and one of her colleagues, who's a psychologist at the St Andrews University, Maggie Ellis, organised this fantastic week-long festival of events and this was to celebrate Dementia Week in St Andrews and I took my father who'd recently been diagnosed with mild dementia that year and we went to just one of the events that week which happened to be a music event um, and this was hosted by the jazz pianist Richard Michael and it was a truly inspirational event. So for, I think probably we'll, we can come back to more of that later, but um, I think probably back to Gail, really, and um, I'll, I'll let you introduce yourself. Okay, thank you very much, Anne. Um, yes, as Anne said, I'm a researcher here at the University of St Andrews, um, and we work at all levels, um, from cells to people, when we, dis- we uh, research um, dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And we start from thinking about the individual nerve cells um, and how they survive and what causes them to to die because we know that cell loss is is crucial to Alzheimer's disease. And we try to understand how this happens in the context of the whole body. So we've all heard things about healthy living, um, but do the things that that happen elsewhere in our body, do they influence how our neurons survive? So we're interested in that sort of thing. As dementia researchers in the UK, we're quite lucky. Many of us have been funded by either the Alzheimer's Society or Alzheimer's Research UK. And both of these encourage us to, to, to move outside the lab and interact with people who are living with dementia, to be aware of not just developing drugs, for dementia, but also to think about the people who are living it with it today. Um, and so that is how I've become more involved as well with the social side of dementia, trying to keep people socially active and trying to help people to live well with dementia. So probably that takes us back to how you got involved as a researcher. And if you maybe wanted just to kind of explain how you did become a, a dementia researcher. Um, yes, well, bizarrely, my undergraduate degree is in developmental biology. So I studied um, how embryos develop. So the very, very earliest stages of life, which is very much thought you could think of as opposite to the aging process that that is part and parcel of uh, 
our, the lighter part of our lifespan and of course is a risk factor for dementia. But as we develop our, our neurons, the, the cells within our brain, too many are made and then this is fine pruned back to give just the right level of cells so that we can live a proper life interacting with our, our environment. So there's a period where cells die and the cell death is part of making us who we are. Um, and some of the same processes take place at the other end of life. So after my undergraduate degree, I started studying exclusively cell death in the nervous system. And then when I became an independent researcher, I, I realized I was more interested in when cell death occurs when it shouldn't. So in development, we need cell death to occur. So we have a functional nervous system so our brain works correctly our spinal cord works correctly we can move our arms and legs as we wish but during neurodegeneration neurons die that we don't want to so I became very interested in how we could protect them and I realized that sometimes when we look at what the population biologists tell us and they tell us things like you know high levels of substances in your blood can be a risk factor for developing dementia, that we could use those risk factors as a way of trying to protect neurons. Um, so I came into it from the earliest times of life, um, now using that knowledge to try and create drugs um, that will prevent dementia from progressing if possible. Yeah, it's amazing actually. Um, the body is incredibly gonna advance and clever. Um, so what are you working on at the moment? Um, well, various things, but I think one of the, 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 the most important ones that we're working on right now is on a hormone called leptin. And leptin is a hormone that tells us when it's time to stop eating. So it's, it's the one that tells us we're full up. And so it's got been extensively studied in an anti-obesity capacity. Um, however, we know that um, people who are living with dementia tend to have reduced levels of leptin, so they don't have as much of it in their body. Now, this isn't as crucial for appetite because there are many other things that regulate appetite. But what we also know is that leptin can stop nerve cells from dying and it can help them talk to one another. So it can keep the network of nerve cells within the brain communicating, which is really, really important. So we have been looking at the link between leptin and dementia in terms of what could it do to benefit people living with dementia? And it has a whole host of beneficial effects in the lab. We know it's reduced in people who have dementia, um, but it's a massive molecule. And the only way to administer it would be through an intravenous injection. And that's not really an option for an elderly person living in the community. So, uh, administering it as an injection is not a great idea. What we've since discovered is that we only need a tiny part of the hormone to get all the benefits that we need for the brain. So we're now looking at turning that tiny part of the hormone into a potential tablet and people would be able to take it as a tablet, which is much more amenable to community living um, and has a lot of advantages. We're used to taking our medicines um, that way and it's something that carers could easily administer as well and um, to people living with dementia unfortunately everything we do is not necessarily a cure for dementia um but it maybe could halt it in its tracks which i think is, is a reasonable ambition 
So when you say that leptin is could kind of prevent some of this neurodegeneration of the neurons, you're saying it could probably halt it um, rather than regenerate. Yes, so regenerating neurons is becoming increasingly uh, possible, I think, as we look at the scientific literature. Um, so certainly there is still some um, neurons dividing um, in even the adult and elderly brain. But putting in a new neuron won't give you that memory back. So the pathway to a memory that's gone will be gone um, when the neurons that were involved in that pathway die. But I always think, and I, I often say this at public engagements, that the day that you're diagnosed, if the doctor could turn to you on that day and say, this is as bad as it'll get, I can give you a drug right now that means your dementia will not progress. Will you make that deal? Everyone would make that deal because the progressive nature of dementia is one of the hardest things about it. And the fact that that road, although we can sometimes slow it down a little, is a road that will be traveled. There isn't an alternative pathway. Um, and so being able to halt it in its tracks, I think is a really um, important research aim. And I think that once you can halt it, then other strategies can come into play um, that can improve quality of life. So that's for some of the more social strategies. There are people, for instance, working with music therapies. These can be very, very important. If we could halt it in its tracks, we could get even more from these kind of therapies. Absolutely. And I suppose the, the burning question for everyone is, so where are we on the development scale? Because it's a long-term um, process with drug development. It is a very, very long-term process. Um, and, you know, one of the things that um, has, I think, come into the public fore during the COVID-19 pandemic is how long scientific processes can, can take. And one of the things with the, the vaccine development that really sped it up was the speeding up of all the ethical processes, the paperwork processes, the funding processes. So where we are is we are, we've just got some funding which will help us develop our little small fragment of leptin into a more druggable compound. And what you would hope is at that stage that a, a, a company would pick up that compound and they would do the large scale trials. So from my point of view for our drugs, we're probably a good 10 years away because that is just how long the processes take. Um, but given that there has been only, I think one new treatment for dementia in the last 20 years, um, you know, everything we can do has got to help. Do you think there's anything we can sort of take from, as you say, the, the speed of the vaccine process? Obviously, that was a fairly global mission, wasn't it? But is there anything we can take from that that might speed up this process? I think so. So I think when you get to the stage of the clinical trials, the clinical trial process ran very quickly for the vaccines. And I know that the kind of feeling is, oh, they haven't been properly tested but they were tested just as much as other vaccines. But the data was being analyzed as we went along and the regulatory authorities, NICE and agencies like that, um, were looking at the data as quickly as they could and when it was being generated. So I think there are things that can be taken from this that will hopefully help other areas of drug development because it did show that we can do it quickly. Um, and as you say, it was a global effort, but even within countries, 
we did move quickly. Obviously, one of the first vaccines that was um, licensed was in the UK with the AstraZeneca, and that was a sort of homegrown invention that we supported from start to finish very rapidly. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's some processes in there that are, are already being looked at um, as, as long as it's done in a, in a safe way. Um, so, no, that's that's very exciting. So 10 years perhaps maybe less and do you think there's any risks with taking I mean there's always risks but is there any particular worries with this um, sort of medication? Yeah I mean there are always risks and um, one of the things that we are keen to do and one of the reasons we tried to reduce the size of the molecule was we are not keen um, to suppress appetite in the elderly because um, as you become older um, your taste, even if you don't have to mention your sense of taste can go a little bit um, and it can be harder for the elderly to eat well as it is. So we don't really want to suppress their appetite. Um, so we're trying to ensure, and so far data suggests that the little fragment we have is not reducing um, appetite and, and the pathways linked to appetite in the laboratory. Um, so that's one thing that we would really not want from this. Um, I think one of the nice things with a lot of hormone-based therapies is although they can have side effects, they tend to be more readily reversible. So if we think of things like steroids, and we know that steroids can have quite severe side effects at the end of the course, it can reverse quite quickly. So I feel that you know by basing it on factors that are within our body themselves, then we are putting in something that's natural for our body to respond to. And so hopefully we would see less off-target effect because our body's designed to respond to that factor so I, I I mean obviously it's a it's a question that is never answered until the huge stage three clinical trials which are many years away if, if this remains successful um, but I would hope that by basing this on a natural hormone that we all have in our bodies that we may be able to reduce some of the side effects and what is there may hopefully be quite reversible I think as with all therapies, it wouldn't be a cure-all for everyone living with dementia. And I hope that one day what we see is that there's a whole, you know, kind of toolkit available to clinicians who could look at an individual and say, okay, so, you know, what are your levels, for instance, of leptin? What are your levels of this? What particular symptoms? What is the precise definition of what's going wrong inside you? That could be leading to the dementia and then that can be very specifically targeted so kind of like a designer personal medicine um, would be my vision of how dementia might be one day that would be fantastic <laughs> um a great aim isn't it uh, well i think it's where we're trying to go with cancer at the moment mm -hmm. so hopefully there's a precedent there yes yeah yeah so you'd be um, some people are more prone for so it'd be kind of genome looking at genomes and that kind Absolutely. of thing. Yeah. Yes. Um, so just sort of moving on slightly, is there anything people worried about dementia can really do to reduce their risk? Yes, absolutely. So um, we've known for a wee while that what's good for your heart is what's good for your head. Um, and many of the things that are risk factor for heart disease are also a risk for developing dementia. So I'm thinking of things like eating a balanced diet, um, you know, not drinking to excess, not smoking, 
taking exercise, etc. So all these things are things that you can do to keep yourself as healthy as possible and hopefully reduce your risk of developing dementia. Of course, it's not a guarantee, um, but it can always help. And I think for me, one of the best examples is that if you carry a specific uh, variation of the APOE gene, which is involved in cholesterol metabolism um, called APOE4, um, that increases your risk of developing dementia by about 1%. But if you walk for a mile every day, re you reduce your risk of, getting develop of developing dementia by about the same amount. So even if you have a genetic risk by living a healthy lifestyle, you can counteract that risk and you can set it back to zero. If you don't carry um, the genetic risk, then you've just decreased your risk of developing dementia by taking that one mile walk every day. And a mile's not a huge amount, um, particularly when, you know, it can be quite a lot for someone obviously in their 70s or 80s who might have other mobility issues. But for most people to start this habit in middle age is perfectly doable. So I think it's a, a really good, uh, simple way to reduce your, your dementia risk. Yeah, abs absolutely. So I think there's quite a lot of misconception about dementia. Um, perhaps the message isn't public, public health messages, maybe not getting out um, unless you've been particularly close to dementia through relatives that, you know, there's, there's a sort of inevitability that people kind of feel there's nothing I can do. Um, to really stop it you know if I'm going to get it I'm going to get it but you're saying something different really yes and I think the public health messaging um, does need to get out there because I do feel that you know a lot of people know how to look after their heart but if you could if you were to ask people what can I do to keep my brain healthy it's not as easy for people to answer that question um, and I always feel when I watch the British Heart Foundation adverts, for instance, I'll take a look at that and I'll think, you know, you've given a really good message, but could we just tag on? And this will also reduce your risk of dementia. Um, just because I don't feel that I see that message as often as I do for things such as heart disease. Um, so it's maybe somewhere where the Alzheimer's charities could be more proactive. It's maybe something that we as researchers could highlight more. Um, in my own um, lab, we go out into local schools um, and we try to talk to people in their teenage years about what can keep their brain healthy. Uh, and we find there as well that when we ask them what keeps their heart healthy, most of them can give us a good list of things that keep their heart healthy. And we ask them what will keep your brain healthy. I don't get many answers and at least not to the degree of the heart link. So even from a very young age in the schools, we can start getting the message out that if we have a healthy lifestyle, we'll benefit our brain as well as our heart. So I think it's a public health message that really needs to get out there. We can modify our risk. We can't make a guarantee that we won't get it. But if you know enough people lived a healthier lifestyle and we could reduce the numbers of people living with dementia significantly, again, I think that's an aim most of us would agree with. Definitely. Um, and I think, you know, if you, it's such a powerful message to go into that very impressionable age group. You know, they're all very um, aware of climate change and recycling and carbon footprint 
and advising their parents on this. So you would think that same message could apply to health. Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, to let them kind of know that there are things that they can do, there are things that they should do from a young age. And actually, I think you make a really important point there that things they could be nagging their parents to do. So just as they say, well, we should maybe get a more eco-friendly car the next time we buy a car or we should insulate the house or we should do the recycling this weekend you know they could also be saying well let's go for a walk because it'd be good for all of us I think you know you're right teenagers have quite a lot of uh, uh, nagging power that could could be deployed uh, there and set the healthy lifestyle in place early so it just becomes part of what they do as they progress through their adult lives as well that's it it's part of 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 what they do like you know they wouldn't they wouldn't think of not recycling you know most of them it's just what we do now whereas we've all we've had to to learn those kind of things so um hugely powerful if you can if you can get into schools and get the message over so do you know any other sort of um social inter do we know any other social interventions that might benefit people living with dementia um i think social interaction is really really important for people living with dementia so you mentioned at the start our little week we had for people living with dementia here in st andrews and we brought in um people and their carers um in to do all sorts of activities we had art activities we had music we had dance we had film uh, we even had a scottish storyteller who came in and told fun stories and had everyone kind of laughing and being part of something um, and there's increasing evidence that social interaction can really benefit people living with dementia it's important for them not to become isolated from the community We know that people who feel isolated can at times progress more rapidly than people who have a supportive social network um, around them. And it's not just the people living with dementia, it's their carers too. So for carers to maybe have that, you know, hour when people were with us, when we were doing our events, where they weren't the carer, we were leading the events, we were dancing with the with the patients in whatever capacity they were able. We had chair dancing, we had people standing up and dancing. We had people who could, you know, who had limited movement that we just did adaptations for. And the caterers had that hour when they could just step back. Some of them could chat to one another um, and they just had a little bit of a break as well. So social interventions are so very, very important for people living um, with Alzheimer's disease and for the whole family that's trying to support them as well. Um, so yeah, I think that is something that as a society we can really think about. We do have the dementia friendly movement, um, which you know businesses can get their dementia friendly badge, um, and the staff have been trained to deal with people living with dementia and provide a supportive atmosphere for them. We have supermarkets now have hours where the lighting's a bit reduced, the noise is maybe a little bit reduced, that's more comfortable for people living with dementia. Um, And even we have supermarket hours. We have one here in St. Andrews where they play uh, music for an older generation. So when you're doing your shopping, you're hearing tunes and stuff that are very much more familiar. So there's lots of ways of trying to keep people living with dementia part of society. And I think it's absolutely vital. It's vital for their well-being. 
and it's also vital for the carers as well. As you say, it's that two-pronged approach. It's it's not just the big focus is always on that patient, the, the dementia patient, but it's such a hard job as a carer, whether it's a family member or as a paid carer or a volunteer. So and and that sort of level of education for all of them. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you know, the carers are very much unsung heroes in a lot of this um, and often take their caring responsibility so seriously and put so much into it that they're not looking after themselves. So just to have that little bit of time when it's you and you can just step back. So we found that at a number of our um, little activities that we ran, that the carers, you know, kind of started to migrate away from the back of the room and just get a little bit of time when they weren't the person the one person who who was who was doing this job and that as you say it wasn't just family carers we had some people coming in from care homes where those staff as well just got that sort of little break they were there if needed but we were leading the sessions and it was something different it was something that was designed for people living with dementia for the music sessions we tried to target the music to the kind of music that they would have heard 20s 30s when they were in their 20s and 30s so we sang songs that were from a little bit further back um, and it really I felt it really held people's interest we did evaluate the sessions um, and we got really good feedback from carers as well as from those living with dementia who could fill out the questionnaires um, so that was really important to us too yeah I mean there's it's such a huge topic but you know there's some really interesting work that you've been um things that you've been looking at so I mean it sort of leads on really from that with this business of not just helping the dementia patient but the sort of wider network um, and so you you looked at some um, health technologies and how sort of the uptake and how health technologies could be used to sort of assist dementia patients and I guess their carers or the families um, yes, so I have been working with computer scientists um, on what we can do for people living with dementia right now um, and a, a much faster rollout, actually, than developing a drug to develop a technology. Um, and we started out by looking, we've, we've spoken to people living with dementia who are still in the community, we've spoken to carers, and we've tried to understand the acceptance of smart technologies. Um, and in actual fact, I think um, the elderly as long as you can say that you will protect their privacy are more accepting of smart technologies than we believe and we can use carers and younger family members as a bridge to try and help with acceptance with technologies as well so the kind of things we've thought about are, are kind of multi-range um, obviously you could have an ideal smart home but people might just need one particular item so we have looked at and are developing actually remote sensing technology which can tell us a little bit about people's blood oxygen levels their heart rate their temperature just from being on a zoom call or something like that where the camera can work these measurements out and that information can get to carers in a timely fashion so that can tell us if general health is not as good on that day We've looked at ways of communicating with families and the kind of 
so if someone's living on their own and family are at a distance, how would you want to be able to talk to that person? Would they be happy to do a video call? So we've looked at things like that. We've also looked at things like fall monitors. Um, some of the fall monitors are quite unpopular um, because they're quite obvious. So people are quite, um, don't want to be identified as using a, tech, a smart technology, although they are willing to use it. They want it to be quite discreet. Um, so that's been quite interesting um, as well. Um, and we also looked at, um, we've asked some people how they would feel about using technology to make new social networks. So the idea that they could connect with other people who are um, living with dementia. And what's interesting there is that um, I was doing another interview not so very long ago um, and we started talking and the person who was interviewing me was telling me about how he played chess with someone who was living with dementia over Zoom. And so it was very acceptable to this person living with dementia that at the moment in the pandemic, et cetera, we can't interact the way we used to. And it has, I think it's one of the positives um, that, that's come out of the pandemic is we've maybe become a little more accepting of technologies because it allows us to continue to interact. So the idea of playing a chess match or something with someone you, who's not in your family is not out of the realms of possibility now and is something that people are perhaps hoping to accept in the future. So I would like to see a whole range of smart technologies. The computer scientists just bamboozle me with their ability for us to have an idea and them to go, yeah, that could work. Um, that just absolutely amazes me. They even spoke about more recently, which I thought was really important, was blink rate. So the rate at which we blink can tell us a little bit about alertness and our health and our uh, levels of interaction as well. So that's another thing that could be easily monitored on a call. Um, so that was kind of cool that, you know, you, you read something, I read something on blink rate and I say to them, could we measure this too? And it's like, yeah. So I, I think that was really interesting as well. Anything's possible. Yeah, I yes. think we, we spoke about this before that, and as you say, with COVID, you know, um, sort of young people have been getting grannies and older relatives on board with this because otherwise they would have been isolated. So this idea of if you don't engage, you will be isolated. So perhaps that whole ethos needs to just stretch across the generations. And I, under, I understand the stigma. There's a you, you said they didn't like wearing something because it was um, the fall technology because it was quite big. And I suppose it's like, um, you know, I remember my father being very resistant. He wouldn't want to have a stick because there's a stigma attached to that. It's just another sort of stigma to get over. Yes, I think so. I mean, th this was one of the first things we did. So I think we did produce a paper on the acceptance of smart home technologies by the elderly. Um, because I think if people want, we can develop all the technologies we want, but if they're not acceptable to our target group, then there isn't a point. So to make devices, I don't know. I mean, I kind of think a little bit about our smartwatches that you know so many people wear these days. To have a wearable device that very discreetly 
monitors vital signs or to have them discreetly monitored while you're having a video call or you're sitting in front of a TV that maybe has a wee special camera in it is much more acceptable. Some of the fall monitors are kind of kind of quite large bulky necklace type things almost so that you can press a button if you have a fall. But you do get people who say, I'm not wearing that. I mean, my own late father was the kind of person who absolutely, it's funny you mentioned the stick. He had a knee replacement. He had no choice but to have a stick. Um, but no one has worked so hard at the physiotherapy to get rid of the stick um, because he saw it as you know frailty and he didn't want that. He was very, very independent. Um, and I think that we need to make people aware that these technologies can help them maintain their independence. I think that could be a really important message. Everyone wants to live as independently as they can for as long as possible. And so telling them, if you can, you know, work out how to use Zoom and Zoom call your daughter who lives two, three hundred miles away and keep in touch that way so she can see that you're looking well and maybe some other monitoring is going on in the background or whatever, then I think most people would be happy enough with that rather than, oh, but I can't see how well you're doing. We'll have to get some people in to support you, et cetera. And obviously there could, as a society, be a cost benefit. I mean, I think the recent social care bill um, that just went through government, maybe not quite as much money went into social care as we might have hoped from the bill. There's still going to be a massive social care bill. We do have to look at the costs of social care. And if we can use technologies to reduce that bill, freeing up resources where they're needed elsewhere, then again, I think that's a fantastic option. Absolutely. I mean, that actually sort of brings us on to some of the sort of mind boggling statistics really about some of the costs. Uh, and there, there was one, I'll let you talk about um, the numbers, but there was one which was I thought was particularly kind of, I'd never really thought about was the cost um, well, the police cost actually of looking for um, missing people so people with dementia who just wandered off and the cost was absolutely mind-boggling so I wondered if you wanted to maybe um, tell yes, us a bit I'm... more about that yes I mean one of the the problems for people who are living with dementia is that they can wander and they can get lost and particularly in a new environment. And of course, they need to be found. And so what happens is that, you know, the police are deployed to do that. And we spend many, many millions of pounds as a society every year on policing, bringing people living with dementia home. Now, if you have a child, I mean, I have a, a daughter who's, who's 10 um, and she's still young enough to agree to wear one of the watches. That means I know where she is all the time. In fact, my son, who's a teenager, is probably unaware that I can track him via his phone. Um, but, you know, we have ways in which people who carry technology can be tracked. And we have had instances where people who've been missing have been found by triangulating the mobile phones or whatever. So that's somewhere we could easily reduce that cost. And, you know, that money, again, could be used somewhere else in the system for some good. Um, and I, I think these are the kind of statistics that I think we don't necessarily think as about as much as we should. So it's not as simple as someone living with dementia is a little bit forgetful. Someone living with dementia has so many areas in life where they might need support um, and they can show behaviours that they wouldn't have shown when they were younger 
and they could maybe wander away. So who's going to find them? That's got cost. There are so many costs involved. And some of these costs, I think, could be managed. So I think things like, you know, early intervention if someone's not feeling well because they may not report that they're feeling unwell. So if we can measure their vital statistics and make sure that we're making sure that health stays as, as good as it can be, if we can keep an eye on uh, where someone is. Um, and I think the problem with the kind of, if you say to someone, well, we'd like to, you know, you to wear something so we know where you are, you automatically think of an offender with a big tagging bracelet on their, on their ankle. And it can be much, much more discreet than that to make the technologies wearable um, and accessible and acceptable. Um, so I think there's so much we can do, but yes, the costs of policing, the costs of, of care workers who go in and out, um, all these things are substantial. I mean, one thing that always strikes me is that any elderly person who gets a urinary tract infection can show symptoms as if they have dementia. It's one of those things that very quickly can lead to confusion. And once it's treated, um, they feel very much better, but it can progress quite quickly when you're elderly and you need that hospital intervention to get the antibiotics in. Um, and I think if we could monitor temperature regularly in someone who was susceptible, particularly if they had dementia on top of this, then that's somewhere where we could prevent them getting into a situation where they were really quite ill and really quite distressed. Um, so there's so many ways we could intervene early, save money for society. Um, and I just, I don't know. Sometimes I think we just need a little bit of joined up thinking, you know? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Because that takes us much broader that obviously the health technologies are not just for dementia patients, are they? They're for, anyone that really wants them yeah. who who perhaps is vulnerable um doesn't have, have to have dementia but you, they they just want to have that reassurance that their health is being monitored um, more closely and as you say if you can pick it up earlier then you know hopefully they're not going to get as ill and you know long-term costs are going to be reduced yeah i mean i think one statistic that really uh, scared me actually was that you the the most money spent by the NHS on you as an individual is in the final year of your life um, which is really really astonishing that you could live to be you know 96 and it's in that 95 to 96 that most of the budget on you is spent but the reassuring thing for me was that the older you are the less that final year cost is so for a younger person that last year of life cost is many, many times greater than for an older person. So if we can find a way to support older people living a healthy old age, whether it's by stopping something like dementia in its tracks, by social interventions, by encouraging healthy living, by you know our health technologies um, monitoring and making sure that everyone's getting the interventions they need in a timely fashion, then we actually, again, as a society, could save huge amounts of money. Yes, absolutely. Um, because the way it's going, um, it seems to be rapidly, almost exponential might be um, putting it too, too much, um, but this, it's rapidly increasing, isn't it, um, with this sort of ageing population? Yes, um, we do have, I think it was in 2001 was the first time that we had more over 65s than under 16s when we did the, the population census, which the government do every few years. Um, 
And that was in contrast to the way that human populations have previously been. So it was like the triangle had turned upside down because it's that younger potential workers who generate the taxes that support people when they are too old to continue working and they've retired. Um, and we're having more people at the top of the pyramid um, and less people at the bottom who will be the ones who have to, have to support that financially. So actually the costs of our old age is a really significant kind of challenge um, for any society. It's not just the UK, across the globe, the aging population is rising um, and older people have so much they can still contribute to us. So it's, it's not a bad thing. I think it's great that, you know, people are living longer and hopefully healthier, but, you know, we do need to find a way and how we're going to support people well. Can I just ask you one more um, you, one more area of your work, which obviously is about saliva and, you know, that could affect, so it was, um, I think you talked about uh, the salivary alpha amylase being a, a biomarker of sort of stress. Yes. So this came off with work that I did with Maggie Ellis, who you mentioned earlier on. So um, she works with people who are nonverbal um, and tries to find ways to communicate with people who can no longer use words. And she does this through a technique called adaptive interaction. And in adaptive interaction, you mirror each other's gestures as a way into that world. Um, and what we didn't really know was whether or not this benefited patients. We can look to see if people are smiling. Um, so you can look at facial expression, but facial expression in some forms of dementia is, is not that easy to read. Um, so we wanted to measure whether we were reducing uh, the feelings of stress in people who were undergoing um, the adaptive interaction. One of the issues with people who are living with dementia is that they can find interventions quite distressing. So trying to take a blood sample can be a unnecessarily dramatic intervention. So it wouldn't be a good way to try and analyze how they were feeling. Um, so we've gathered salivary samples from people before they've had their adaptive interactions session, afterwards, and then four hours um, after that. Um, and what we found was that if we looked at what was in the saliva, there's an, a, a, a component called salivary alpha amylase. Um, and when we're feeling uh, emotional or psychological stress, alpha amylase levels increase. So someone who's unhappy, who's feeling quite, you know, emotionally overwrought will have high levels of salivary alpha amylase in their saliva. And what we found was that when Maggie did her adaptive interaction with the patients, their levels of salivary alpha amylase fell. And so she truly was benefiting these patients by interacting with them. For me, sort of getting back to an earlier part for conversation, a really cool thing that also happened was that Maggie's levels fell too. So there's evidence there that we could benefit the families and carers if we could train families to do this interaction with nonverbal patients, that we could perhaps benefit the families too and the people who were doing the interacting. So that was really nice. The big problem we had was collecting enough saliva from the elderly. And some people gave us quite small samples. Um, so now we, we are working with a team over in the School of Physics and Astronomy 
um, and they've discovered a way of shining a laser at a dried sample of saliva, so just a teeny tiny droplet, and they can, when they, they shine the laser on it, they read the light that's bounced back, and they found that saliva real families has a really unique sort of fingerprint when it's bounced back, so it may be that we're able to produce technologies that are quite easy to use so we can measure this better and then more and more people um, and it could potentially, I mean, Blue Sky's thinking a bit, wouldn't it be really cool if this could be done in care homes, not just for adaptive interaction, but for someone who, to find out how they're feeling. Are they psychologically distressed? Can we analyze their saliva at point of care? So that's our kind of Blue Sky's thinking there. Well, the physicist's Blue Sky's thinking would have something that could be deployed in care homes. But for us, what we were interested in was does adaptive interaction work for the patient in terms of how they feel? Because they can't tell us and their saliva tells us that it does. And it tells us it worked for Maggie and therefore hopefully for other carers as well, um, because she was very much in the role of the carer, the person doing the interaction. I mean, she, she absolutely adores doing these interactions. So it probably isn't that surprising, um, but it, it was a really nice validation there to use the kind of molecular science to prove that the, the sort of care-based therapies actually have a benefit for patients. No, definitely. Because as you say, as a carer, uh, relative, husband, wife, watching someone, those patients you're talking about who are um, nonverbal communicators, it's very distressing to know because how are they feeling because you might get a smile but you might not are they happy are they not so that validation is is really exciting actually um that's you know hugely exciting um is there is there anything else that you feel i mean i think we've we've covered a lot and we could we could speak you know <laughs> at, at length um but anything else in in summary that you would like to kind of bring together I don't know. I mean, I guess um, I'm in a different position to a lot of people who will maybe listen to you who are current carers or people living with dementia. So I guess I see things from the sort of grassroots level of what's going on. And what I do see, and despite pandemics and everything, is I see quite a, an impressive effort to investigate dementia at all levels from our little cells all the way up to people living with dementia. And I do have a bit of hope, to be honest, that one day dementia will be stopped in its tracks and that we can offer people who are living with it a really good quality of life as far as possible. I don't know how long it'll take, but I think I still remain optimistic that we can do a lot better than where we are in dementia and that we're putting the tools in place as research communities to be able to do it. Um, so I, th I think I would say that I remain optimistic that if you and I were to meet in 20 years time, we might have a very different conversation. That's good to know. <laughs> That's good to know. <laughs> Assuming we we're not demented ourselves. <laughs> but... Uh, um, Okay, no, that's no, that's fantastic. And I mean, I suppose one of my takeaways is really that, or a few takeaways is that lifestyle, you know, it has an impact. So the health message, public health message around dementia is similar to heart. And maybe those 
um, two societies can team up and try yes. and get that health message out there. So sort of better messaging um, rather than stand alone. I think we spoke about that more joined up. Um, and just that emotional, social, financial costs to society of dementia are, as we said, pretty mind boggling and growing at an alarming rate. Um, but I think what you spoke about uh, with regard to the technologies which we've got and are using um, with kids, with dogs, with um, all sorts of, you know, find your phone, um, you know, just getting that out and using it and, you know, getting that acceptance into the population um, and starting with young people so that it's part of their education would seem really, really important. Yep, absolutely agree. Okay, so I just thank you very much. Um, I'm sure we can maybe speak again, but I think it just remains really to say that um, please, um, if you'd like to join us again for any future ep episodes, we're going to be speaking um, more about dementia and dementia and music. Uh, we've also got something on hashtag NPJ paralysis and also, also on health coaching. And there's going to be some references at the end of the um, episode. If you would like to add any comments and give us any feedback, that would be fantastic. Thank you for joining us. Let's Chat Health with Anne Budenberg. Empowering patients to be involved in their healthcare. care.